Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello. And welcome to this edition of Between the Lines, the podcast that deciphers the handwriting, unfolds faded pages and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks and letters written during this same week, there or thereabouts, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Let's start with a quick recap of the situation. We're looking at the third week of April 1943. In Europe, Bremen has been attacked in daylight with a loss of 62 enemy aircraft. There's also been a heavy raid on Scotland, 127 bombs on Aberdeen, raising 12,000 homes to the ground. On the Eastern Front, the Red Army has been facing fierce German resistance, but in North Africa, the tide has really turned. Let's catch up with Regimental Sergeant Major Jack Ward. The war diaries for the 56 Heavy Artillery Note, they're now embedded between St Gilbert and Longstop Hill. Extensive enemy air activity gets a mention, and so too does the number of rounds they're firing. But there's not much forward progress. It's all very frustrating, as the shells seem to fall between the enemy's tanks. Jack can see that the enemy is moving, but the truth is, he's not going very far. April 15th. No post yet, but new CO was sorted today. Don't expect to see Colonel Grant back. Bad luck. We are being held up on the left flank. Eight farming now, 240 miles from Tunis. April 18th. I've moved to a forward area, but we're being held up on the left flank. Hard fighting. Grand day, though. <laughs> Very hot. Received airmail letter last night, but no C-mail yet. April 19th. Saw Jerry coming down in his parachute yesterday. Very hot and getting hotter. We're expecting a big move any minute. Roll on. Let's get it over. You can feel Jack's frustration. Not least as, yet again, it's another increasingly warm day in northern Tunisia. After the misery of a cold and often very wet winter, the weather was suddenly changing dramatically. Here in northern Tunisia... It was no longer desert, but rather open, hilly grassland and cork forests, much like the Mediterranean landscape on the other side of the sea. Back in Britain, 
there's also a nod to the temperature. It's not as hot as Tunisia, of course, but the newspapers are all reporting that the south of England is experiencing something of a heatwave. Veer Hodgson is making the best of the sunshine. She records her thoughts and observations on life in London in a diary, showing how unimportant people in London and Birmingham lived through the war years 1940 to 45. And here she is, making the most of a weekend. People watching in London. Sunday, 18th. They say no spring like it for 50 years. With a bound, we have gone into summer frocks. It is 80 degrees in the Straits of Dover. This is the only part of the country that is allowed to advertise its temperature. Windows wide open make me think of Poggio Imperale Garden, with the lemon trees all out. Have thought often of those Italian girls. Some of them came from Trapani and places in Sicily we are now bombing. Saturday night, Marie and I went to Petrified Forest, set in Arizona. All very exciting. Came out in daylight. Piccadilly is a thrilling place these days. All the uniforms of all the nations jostle you on the pavement, and since there is hardly any traffic, you can walk right round the circus in the road. Some of the soldiers label themselves Poland or Canada, but there are lots with just emblems. Such varied faces and manners. Girls too in their trim service uniforms by the hundred. Few fashionables, because all the pretty girls are in battle dress. I wanted to go on walking round and looking at the people, but Marie wished to go home. Tossed her up a rice dish. Her aristocrat may return to Newcastle, a creature of moods. Today walked in the gardens. Fresh green grass was like fairyland, very hot. Went along the flowery walk, Prunus la Blossom, found Prince of Wales Gate and Holy Trinity Brompton. There was a passion play on. Lovely church, found a seat and sat down. We all sang a hymn. Then off went the lights and the play began, all in front of the altar. The Virgin sweetly portrayed, face and manner just right. Judas, with a red beard, played the best of men. Red beard is traditional from the mystery plays, I believe. Mary ends with speaking of the risen Christ, and there is no death. Came out into the sunshine, went into the palace and saw the bombed room. It was incendiaries, and mercifully, only part of the roof went. That was October the fourth, nineteen forty. I like the nursery and bedroom of Princess Victoria best, arranged by Queen Mary. An alert today. Several brief visits lately. Thursday night was bad at Chelmsford. Jail had a direct hit. Masses of incendiaries, which the prisoners helped to put out. Searchlights are marvellous these nights. Our planes are up, and the lights try to catch them. Silver specks in the sky. A confession about a bottle of lemon cordial, brought me by Kit some time ago. Rare, so I determined to save it for my visitors. In this, I failed utterly. Each night, arriving back, have felt cruelly thirsty. And this glorious bottle reposing on my shelf was too much. Little by little, I have drunk the lot. The craving for lemon juice by the British public is almost an obsession. We feel we could drink it neat by the gallon. 
Veer's people-watching skills are pretty good, although her views are clearly guided by what's in the newspapers. She mentioned the bombing of Sicily, and that appeared in all the broadsheets, but the truth of the matter is, she's a long way from the action. Someone who's about to make better headway is Captain Herbert, or rather Bertie, Packer. He's preparing HMS Warspite for her journey south to Cape Town. He's getting used to the ship again. He served on her once before, many years ago, as a gunnery officer. But he can't quite get used to the absence of his wife, Joy, who's also sailing somewhere in the South Atlantic. Saturday, 17th of April. At sea, Durban to Freetown first. Beautiful fresh water, screened by Foxhound, Rotherham and Catterick. Sunday, 18th of April. Sunny and fresh. Gunnery exercises. Had a strafe about the sailor's costume. Had to tell one shocker he looked as if he'd fallen off a barge. Soon put that right. Here Devonshire and my old friend young Jameson is to join us. SS Arundel Castle left behind at Durban. Quarantined for typhus. What a disappointment to the homegoers. Reading the years of endurance by Arthur Bryant and could not help noticing the younger Pitt's remark to the Bishop of Lincoln preaching a sermon about God's help in winning battles. Your sermon would be to prove that God, who governs the world by his providence, never interposes for the preservation of men or nations without their own exertions. Wrote to Joy to await her arrival in Cape Town. When and how? Hope to send it in a destroyer tomorrow. Monday 19th of April. Six-inch firings in the forenoon. Picked up a convoy of Stratheden and Britannic and HMS Devonshire and took station with some dash, I thought. Sent mail off in Foxhound, having transferred it by line at 12 knots. Took mail from Quilliam, Shorty Carlhill, which I had had the forethought to have extracted from Kenya a week ago. I believe Ockenleck and Admiral Fitzherbert and the Lady Rachel are in the convoy homeward bound. Very busy as senior officer of escort, getting everything squared off for the voyage. Hope I have succeeded, but if one does not attend the convoy conference, which I could not as it was at Cape Town, it leaves many ends to be sorted out. A beautiful crisp sunny day and a full moon this evening. Saw Table Mountain 80 miles away and had the usual happy thoughts it always gives me. The mail was first week in March. Five weeks old, not too bad. Two bills from Sassine stamped with a rubber stamp. If you have already paid this, take no notice of it. Pretty decent, I call that, especially as I don't know if I have paid it. Or is it a dodge to get a bit extra with the rubber stamp phrase as a get-out? Anyway, only an ass would pay if he doesn't know. Settling down nicely now. And Grey, my valet, young Scott, shy and never a valet or at sea before, is settling down too. He'll be all right in time. Still think ship marvellous. Had a couple of blow-ups today. One officer still not shaved by 10am. And two cubbyholes full of old cigarette ends and stale sink. Tuesday 20th of April, Wednesday 21st of April. In convoy at 16 knots. Quality, Quilliam, D4 Carlyle. Quali, Queensborough, SS Stratheden, SS Britannic, Warspite, Devonshire, Young Jameson. Training intensively on board. Hamilton G, first class, especially on the AA side, and is reaping some rewards for his Whale Island labours. All the close-range AA films he made are on board, and he is using them to the full. 
25 Erlikons we have and four eight-barrelled pom-poms, but only two twin four-inch AAs each side. I fear dive bombers will release outside the Erlikon effective range. It is only 20 millimetres, i.e. eight inches. Having much difficulty drilling, changing over to steam steering gear from electric in each watch, but by constant drill it is getting very much better. Must get it down to 45 seconds. Carlil D4 kindly sent this signal. I wondered whether you knew that Mrs. Packer was introducing two sailors at 1615 GMT. At 17.50 hours then, I shall be there. Thrilling. Friday, 23rd of April. Good Friday. St. George's Day. Shakespeare's birthday. Heard Joy last night interviewing two South African sailors. Joy. I hear sailors have a girl in every port. Sailor. Well, I can't say. I haven't been to every port. Fresh, sunny weather in the southeast trades. I am out at 5.30 every morning for dawn action stations. Drills, plotting exercises, etc. all day. Much warmer this evening in latitude 10 degrees south, and tomorrow, no doubt, will be hot and sticky again. I like this ship's company. They set about things with vigour and thoroughness. I hope I'm right in my estimate of the officers and ship's company. I am pretty sure I am, so if things don't go right, it will be my fault. Still no clue in what ship Joy could have sailed on. There was a fast ship left Dorothy's on the 6th of April, but I don't think she could have made that. Slow convoy, I fancy. Bertie was impressed with the tremendous speed at which his mail arrived. Five weeks old, he says, and of course time is a theme when we're looking at letters travelling between men and women who are stationed thousands of miles away from each other. Back in Edinburgh, David's mother, Mar Blythe, is trying hard to keep track of her son's correspondence. These small messages are full of little things like birthdays, weddings, and inevitably in war, funerals. This week, we only have one half of the conversation, but Mar is still intent on staying in touch as much as she can. Dear David, I received your aircraft and I also received your letter of 30th of March this afternoon. Joan thanks you for the nice birthday greeting. Very original and well done. She took it in to show her friends and now she has sent it on for Ian to see. Very proud of her big brother. We're all delighted to hear you were going to see Auntie Jean and we hope you found Uncle Willie okay. Joan had a letter today saying they were hoping you would be able to visit them as they were all excited about you being over there. I see you have been to Detroit again. Had a good time. I guess you sit spellbound listening to that band. Have you not managed to wriggle your way into the pianist's seat yet? I sent you an airmail letter last week and I'm going to send you a real letter tomorrow giving you all the news. Hence, only the aircraft today. We had a very enjoyable day at Rosythe. The wedding day is the 6th of November. Hope you are still well and happy. All the folks here are fine. Gan sends love to her boy. Never mind numbering your aircrafts. I get them all. All the best. Love, Ma. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. Two guys drove to work. 
Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Nineteen forty-three really is the year everything's ramping up in every theater. Back in February, the American Fourteen Corps had successfully routed the Japanese from the key island of Guadalcanal. The island had been finally cleared back on the ninth of February, but now it's April, and in the lull following the island's capture, it's time for a change at the top. Major General Oscar Griswold is taking over, shipping out to help support the fight in the Pacific theater. Even today, that kind of journey. Doesn't happen overnight. Griswold is leapfrogging from island to island, from Viti Levu to New Caledonia, and then across that island by the most expedient type of transport, light aircraft, to the headquarters of Major General Millard Fillmore Harmon, commander of the U.S. Army forces in the South Pacific. Next week, he'll be learning the lie of the land. For now, though, he's still travelling from one very small landmass to another. Sixteenth and seventeenth April, nineteen forty-three, left Nandi at o six thirty a.m. Arrived at Plains de Goyac at ten o five the same day. However, one day was gained by crossing the international dateline. Hence, have arrived in New Caledonia PDC in less than three days' flying time. Took a plane directly to Nomia, landing at Magenta Airstrip at o four thirty p.m. on April seventeenth, Saturday. Eighteenth and twentieth April, nineteen forty-three. Remained at Numia, being a guest in General Harmon's house. Had various conferences to get the real situation. Got some underwear, clothes, junk, etc. to take forward. 21st April 1943. Left Magenta in a small plane. Short flight to Tontuta. There took General Harmon's own plane. Took off at 0900. Arrived at Spiritu Santo, New Hebrides Group at 1150. Had conferences with Admiral Fitch. Commander Air Sopak, and with General Twining, Commander Army Air Sopak. 22nd April 1943. Left to Spiritu Santo, 7.15 a.m. Arrived Henderson Field, Guadalcanal at 11.50 a.m. Saw some terrain of island with General Patch. 23rd April 1943. Continued turnover. Saw more facilities, bivouacs, and defense installations. Even though he's done nothing but travel for days now, or so it seems, it's clear that Oscar's time is being filled with what feels like routine at this point. For Sapir Harry Wilson, however, every day is a school day. We find him graduating from his cipher training, moving on to handle real messages with real impact. Every day, hundreds if not thousands of coded signals are going in and out as intelligence is passed from unit to unit. Cipher clerks worked at many levels. They all needed training. Saturday 17th. Things are getting interesting. Hardcastle, the thick-lipped warrant officer, CSM explained high-grade Y cipher today. I hadn't done a live medium-grade message yet, but here I am, learning high grades. Needless to say, I was delighted. A red book was placed in front of me, and I was told to get familiar with it. Took some time, I can say. 
Sunday 18th continued high-grade cipher, this time under the tutorage of a stuttering sergeant named Parker. Parker was a real troyer. No matter how long a word stuck in his throat, he never desisted from his attempt to articulate it. And sometimes I had to wait half a minute for the pleasure of hearing the word I had already anticipated long before it was uttered. His voice was low and soft, and whenever he overcame the impediment, the rest of the sentence poured out in an easy musical flow. Tuesday 20th. Did my first live message this morning. A brigade one, of course. I felt heavily responsible. And as I handed it out to the counter clerk, Joe Blackburn and Bill Penny arrived from 9th Army. Blackburn made himself at home immediately and started a discussion about cipher pay, a subject he seemed to know a lot about. Penny kept sagaciously quiet, but looked unhappy. I don't think much of this joint, he said. To Zale with Joe in the evening, dining in the grotto and strolling about the moonlit terraces, discuss cipher pay and prospects. Both of us are eager to become high-grade operators and sergeants as soon as possible. Joe is a decent lad, sharp-witted, keen and ambitious. But I can think of him only as a small boy on a stool doing what he's told and doing it remarkably well. Wednesday 21st. Started shift work this morning. Cipher work goes round the clock and is divided into four shifts. 8am to 12.30, 12.30 to 5pm, 5pm to 10pm and 10pm to 8am. Summer, it seems, has come at last. Today was definitely warm. In the evening, I had an illuminating chat with Corporal French, one of the medium-grade operators. His conversation was mainly a toy raid against Captain Lee, whom he detested. He had had a row with Lee once, and the latter had repeatedly passed him over when nominating high-grade courses, picking inexperienced lieutenant corporals instead. Lee was a snob, said French. In civil life, he was a schoolmaster and he could never get out of the habit of treating people like kids. During the First World War, he managed to remain in England until late 1918, when he was sent to do Salonica. And he never stopped talking about what he did out there, said Lee. Corporal French advised me to keep my face clean when Lee was concerned, and also to keep on the best side of Captain Tregaskis, who could do a lot for me. Back in the billet, I found Brian Birch thoughtfully arranging flowers in a Persian jug. Brian is a quiet, serious man who passes most of his time walking alone through the countryside. He told that last week he'd met a nun, who invited him to her convent and gave him coffee. Anxious to reward her, he searched Salah for a flower shop to buy some flowers for her, but he couldn't find one. So this evening he took a stroll to the hillside and gathered a bunch of weedy red flowers. Thursday 22nd. So warm now that the noonday sun is uncomfortable. CP1 Lomas left for Cairo to take the high-grade course. I bought his bed for four Syrian pounds, a bargain. He doesn't expect to be back. Only unsuccessful students are returned to their units. The others are posted to the pool. My cipher proficiency increases and now I do live messages, both high and medium grade, though I cannot sign them as I'm not yet an NCO. I have taught Blackburn and Penny the office routine and helped them over many difficulties that used to beset me. I stayed in this evening. Brian went to deliver the flowers. Friday 23rd. Good Friday, and a camp holiday for everyone, except the signal and cipher shifts, which included me. Colonel Lloyd, the three-corps CO, has been promoted to CSO Sirenisha and leaves tomorrow. There will be a send-off parade for him in the morning, and every unit in the corps is to be represented. So this afternoon, Lee and Tregaskis brushed off their pistols, which had been lying in a box for months. I get the impression that the aversion of ciphers to parades, ceremonies and general discipline is viewed with great disfavour by the Royal Corps of Signals. We don't attend signals parades of any kind. Our own warrant officers are supposed to inspect our rifles every Saturday, but never do. And some of the operators here tell me that they can't remember the last time they looked through the barrel. 
I slept during a warm afternoon and then took a stroll along the mountain road. Here the green valley, that only a few weeks ago lay brown and bare beneath the hail clouds of late spring, rises abruptly to the Lebanon foothills, which are also coated with grass and wild flowers. It was pleasant to walk here, to see the young corn by the wayside, to hear the brooks sing merrily down the slopes, and to smell the blossoming fruit trees in the gardens. On the whole I felt happy. I hate the barracks with its guarded gates, but I love the country, and the work I'm doing engrosses me. I must say, it pleases me too. And we finish this week, not in the Far East, but with a journey back to the desert, where we find Captain Chester B. Hansen, or Chet, diligently recording his experiences as an aide to General Omar Bradley. These men have also spent more time than they'd like, travelling to take point in a fast-moving campaign. The splendid luxury of a TWA cruise liner has given way to broken old bucket seats on small airplanes, landing at Marrakesh, where their first experience of a total blackout was rather terrifying. The next stage in the journey was a quick trip through Casablanca, no prettier city in North Africa, according to Chet, and from there to Algiers, and finally through to Gafsa, a small garrison town in southern Tunisia, and to inspect the US 1st and 9th Infantry Divisions. The 15th of April, command of US 2 Corps passed quietly from General George S. Patton to Omar Bradley. Patton returned to planning for America's contribution to the invasion of Sicily, and Bradley moved his headquarters from Gafsa to a site near Beda. Officially, he assumed command on the 19th of April. With the Tunisian campaign now about to enter its final phase, Chet has his work cut out, supporting the General as US 2 Corps helps the Allied forces close in on Tunis. April 18th to April 22nd. Now we're in the process of preparation. Our problem is logistics, especially the provision of sufficient equipment for D-Day operations. Ammunition supply critical, high targets set for fulfillment. Movement behind British First Army to new positions accomplished with minimum of confusion. Enemy activity is light during occupation of positions. Intermittent artillery. D-Day set for April 23rd, Good Friday. Main effort to be pushed by 1st Infantry Division with Infantry Division providing holding attack to north of Sector. British 5th Corps sustains counterattack from German tank elements to south of Longstop and Mousetrap position. General visits General Alfrey, commanding the Brit 5th Corps, to provide flanking liaison and makes personal reconnaissance of terrain to 1st Division front with General Anderson. Some question as to whether American Corps will establish D-Day. Need for conjunction with effort of British 5th Corps on south. Anderson leaves decision to General, then confronted by supply problem. Logistics squirm through and General votes to attack with British on April 23rd. General Alfrey, an extremely personable chap, greeted me and escorted me to the building where General Bradley was waiting with his brigadier, Nicholson. Found British officers there, smoking 20 grands, which our officers had given them. Pulled my luckies and explained our aversion for off-brand smokes. General Anderson seems to be an extremely personable man, though he does not inspire the confidence and competence of General Alexander. Perpetual smile on his face and an air of grinning preoccupation. General gave him day's K-ration while on reconnaissance. Anderson drives own jeep, though not too skillfully, over rough roads. Saw one enemy airplane and opened fire with 50 caliber machine gun fire. Accompanied on regimental visits to 1st Division with General Roosevelt, 
who had the same bumptious aggressiveness that possessed his father. An absolute picture, stumbling about on his cane. Men think the world of him, and he appears correspondingly competent and is certainly personally interested in the welfare and benefit of his troops. General still showing little signs of nervousness as D-Day approaches. Attitude's much the same as the one he had on maneuvers, and he retains the good commander's detached viewpoint of things when troops become blue and red symbols on a sheet of acetate as he jockeys for thrusts in the enemy's weak position. April 23rd. Prior to D-Day, we have a visit from General Eisenhower, General Giraud, and General Clark at different intervals. Then General McNair. Had pleasant chat with General Clark in the Rose Garden that is our bivouac, and he passed a compliment on me to the general. Visitor problem is becoming quite difficult, especially since visitors present a billeting problem to the unit in the field. Line elements dislike them. They draw fire on positions and artillery OP, and then fade away when the hot stuff starts leaving the troops to face it. General issues order that no one will visit artillery OP without expressed permission of senior artillery officer and sector. General Giraud cuts an extremely impressive figure. Arrived here with a retinue of cameramen and had pictures taken with General McNair. American correspondents also got pics of General Bradley and General Giraud. Missed a shot at Bradley with McNair. Artillery preparation launched for D-Day and attack steps off at 0330. Bright, clear, and sunny morning. General waiting for preliminary reports from initial assault units. Shows first signs of the tremendous responsibility he must now feel. Suggests going for a walk, and we hike over a nearby jobble, where he shoots his carbine and cracks the rocks we throw in the air. Attack progressing slowly to start, though I understand that is natural. Absence of air activity in G2 tells us that the enemy is heavily outnumbered in the air. More than 1,000 planes in air on April 20th to mark the Fuhrer's birthday. Air catches transport six mortared planes bringing in replacement. Shoots down 21 of 24 believed carrying almost 4,000 troops. Last note heard over the intercom. God damn it, haven't you any of you bastards got ammunition enough to get those last three sons of bitches? Fighters were from the western desert. Another intercom communition. Spitfire 5 was on a tail of Messerschmitt. Spitfire 9 desired to get in and bring down the Messerschmitt since he was fast enough to effect the job. Ground crew heard. God damn it, now I'm telling you for the last time, get out of the way and let me get a crack at him. General McNair was wounded on D-Day when shell fragments penetrate his helmet, landing and scalp, and another fragment tears away part of his shoulder. General attempts to meet him. Goes to aid station where we see wounded being carried in from battlefield, struck by the quiet of it all, and by the manly way in which the wounded did act. One boy, badly hit in several places, apologized to the doctor for causing him so much trouble. Another had his leg amputated and cheered up only when the doctor told him of a friend in the States who had just had his fourth youngster, despite his wooden leg. The boy brightened up, said perhaps things weren't too bad. Another youngster kept telling the general his outfit took the hill. Repeated it, again and again. Medical personnel are callous to this sort of thing. Handle it with professional detachment. Off to the 15th evacuation hospital, where he saw his first women in many weeks, but they looked sexless in their fatigues, all except one redhead with the jolly ward. Told General about it afterwards. He accused me of eyeing up the nurses while he devoted himself to the patients, talked lightly and gaily to them, and they were very much impressed. He told stories of the time he used to shoot at his cousin's heart. Cousin took his heart, held it on a fishpole, and the General took a shot, 
hit it. General held his heart. Nephew or cousin took a shot and missed. Another time they shot at eggs. And the cousin threw one straight up in the air for the general to shoot at, intending to catch it when the general missed. Instead, got an omelet on the head when a bullet cut the egg in half. Considerable concern over McNair's wound, but all agreed that it would be good publicity for circulation back in the States, especially in view of McNair's blood and guts talk. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading. Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Veer Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor. <laughs>